But are we ready? Can you hand them in? Um, two angels whom Satan interacts with. Good angels, loyal angels. That's question number one. Question number two, uh, question number, sorry, that's, those are questions one and two. Question three is, who guards the gates of hell? And question four is, on his way from hell to earth, whose realm does Satan fly through? If you want to call it flying. Slog through. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, what we talked about, um, uh, sort of by way of an overview on Monday, was the interesting similarity between Satan's speeches in um, books one and two of Paradise Lost, especially book one, um, and the lady's speech in Comus. That is, they both make the claim that what really counts is, um, the, is your mental life, is the experience of the mind, um, rather than anything external or outside of you. Um, this is going to be an issue throughout Paradise Lost, um, one of the things that you'll see, I already mentioned this, but um, it's worth repeating, is that um, the very temptation that Comus um, offers to the lady, which is to talk about the absolute richness of the world, um, why should you let all of this fussed unused? Um, how can there be all this tremendous excess in nature, all this um, exuberant proliferation of natural life, and you, you think that it's all supposed to be ignored. Um, and the that's what provokes in the lady her response, um, which is um, what counts is what is the mind um, and not the external world. Um, I'm, I'm alighting and telescoping here, but that's essentially the distinction between an outside world which is tremendous in its offerings and the mind, the human mind, and we're gonna, I'm going to use the word human now in Paradise Lost for all anthropomorphic creatures from God to Satan. That is all um, persons in the poem. Um, the human mind um, is indifferent ultimately or can achieve indifference to the outside world, which is only um, a world of um, illusion. But what really matters is, or if not, I mean, that's Plato's term for it, is illusion. But what really matters is that the mind is its own place and can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. If you think of the yuckier fallen angels like Mammon, that is, we get a whole list of fallen angels who speak in council, um, and none of them is remotely like Satan in terms of the power of their characters. Um, Milton is clearly distinguishing between Satan um, on the one hand and the kind of um, servile minions who are his interlocutors in hell on the other. Um, Beelzebub is maybe the closest um, person Satan has to a genuine friend in hell. Um, but Satan is their leader 
but the figures that he's leading are not figures on the whole who are impressive. You don't find um, that the rebel angels on the whole, um, when they're listed separately, that is. I mean, they are, they are impressive as an army. They're not so impressive when you look at their own um, motivation. So Mammon is a figure, for example. We saw Mammon first, um, a different Mammon, but Mammon um, in Book 2 of the Fairy Queen. Now we see Mammon in Hell, um, and Mammon is a figure who's always interested in um, gold and silver and things which are beautiful, but they're just material. Um, they're simply um, material objects, and they have nothing to do with what really matters, which is what happens in the mind. So Satan and the Lady are both figures who, who are um, sublimely intent on the mind's self-sufficiency um, and sublimely intent on seeing the mind's self-sufficiency as what and where its freedom lies. That is, freedom isn't ended by incarceration, let's say, um, by, by physical compulsion. As long as the mind is free, you have freedom. That's what makes freedom an ideal is that it's not freedom to um, play any video game you want. It's freedom to think anything you want. And a commitment to freedom is what you will find in Satan as well as in the Lady in Comus. Um, the richness of the world is going to come up, as I said before, as an issue in Paradise Lost um, when Adam questions Raphael about what looks to him like... Um, um, infrugality on the part of the world, wastefulness on the part of the world. Um, and Raphael offers him some counteracting arguments, but it's worth noticing that for Adam, um, the world itself um, is a puzzle, and a puzzle which he doesn't have to solve. Um, what Raphael tells him is you have to um, be aware of yourself and not worry so much about the outside world, even in Eden. So that distinction between the mind and the world, you will find all, you'll find through Milton everywhere, but it's particularly easy to see that it plays out um, in Comus and in Paradise Lost, also in Paradise Regained and in Samson. Um, it plays out in ways in which um, it, you might be surprised as to who says what about which. Um, and part of what makes Satan so noble a character and potentially the hero of Paradise Lost is, um, possibly the hero of Paradise Lost, is that he takes the austere and sublime view that, it's, that is clearly the morally correct view in Comus. That's the lady's view talking about the sage and sober doctrine of chastity, of virginity. Um, but Satan's views are not very different from hers about what the mind can do. And, um, that, and that shows Milton thinking um, about these issues in ways that have little to do with who the, who the supposedly good and bad guys are. So that's, um, that, that's something that uh, um, I want you to keep in mind throughout. In Paradise Regained, just to, just to um, alert you to this for when you get there, um, what 
a very different Satan offers in Paradise Regained. Satan in Paradise Regained is not at all an impressive figure. I mean, he's impressive as a villain, but he's much <coughs> more a villain, much more uh, Duessa-like or Archimago-like than the Satan of Paradise Lost. Um, but what Satan in Paradise Regained um, offers uh, the Son of God, offers Jesus, um, the human <coughs> being, who is son of God, um, is offers, is, makes an offer rather like Comus's. He shows him the world and says, look at all the things you can have if you only do what, if you only bow down to me. Bow down to me and I will give you all of this. And what he's giving, what he's offering, is the entire world and the richness and wealth of the world. So um, not to give you a spoiler or anything, but Jesus doesn't worship Satan. Um, he refuses to um, and that refusal is like the lady refusing to um, do Comus's bidding um, it's, it's a retelling of a similar situation um, in Samson Samson like Milton is blind and has somehow to now um, um, think through and reconcile himself to the difference between um, seeing the world outside you and being confined into your own mind, within your own mind by blindness. Now that confinement within his own mind, Milton is very explicit about that, that there is a certain kind of confinement that blindness gives you. What it doesn't prevent and this is also really important for Milton, is it doesn't prevent interacting with others. It doesn't prevent conversation. It doesn't prevent language. It doesn't prevent poetry. It doesn't prevent dialogue. But the point about all those things, conversation, language, poetry, dialogue, interacting with others, is that those are mental interactions. Speech, poetry, dialogue, those are minds communicating with minds. And so it's not that you're alone if you're blind, but what happens if you're blind is that the beauty of the visible world, this is almost a tautology, but it's an important one, the beauty of the visible world is not available to you. The very things that Comus is pointing the lady to, that the very things that those who um, talk about the beauty of heaven in Paradise Lost um, point to as what's beautiful in heaven. Um, what Raphael will say to Adam is that in heaven, it does become nighttime. We have night and day in heaven, but in heaven, nighttime is very bright. Um, it's basically twilight. Um, it doesn't ever get darker than that. Um, heaven is a beautiful, beautiful place. What the, what the Father sees in the Son is the radiance, is his own radiance reflected to him. Heaven is a place of light. Um, all of that is um, ranged under the idea of the beautiful. But that's what Samson doesn't get. That's what Milton doesn't get. What Milton gets instead is um, what's inside the mind, and what he gets is <coughs> thought. What he gets is, um, is sharing thought. What he gets is conversation. Now again, if thought is, and if the sharing of thought, if conversation, if interacting with others on what we would 
what we call a discursive level, if that's what's really important, um, this discursive interaction, if that's what's really important, then it's worth noticing how much discursive interaction there is in hell, how much people speak to each other in hell, and how little people <coughs> speak to each other in heaven. In heaven, God just says how things are going to be. This day I have begot whom I declare my only son, as you will see. Um, unto him all knees shall bow and shall proclaim him Lord. So in heaven, there isn't sharing of thought so much. What there is is God says something and everyone says that's great. Um, whatever God says. But in hell, there is sharing of thought. And now... Um, so what I said on Monday, and now I want to um, complicate that. Oh, what I said on Monday is that um, the first question you have to ask yourself is, are you on the side of the rebel angels or on the side of the loyal angels in Paradise Lost? Um, that is the major argument that people have been having since at least the 1790s. Um, in some ways before that, but it becomes very explicit in the 1790s. That is, 130 years after Milton writes it, William Blake, in his great book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, says that the reason Milton wrote in chains when he wrote of heaven, and that's a very bad thing to write in chains with Blake, the reason Milton wrote in chains when he wrote, when he wrote about heaven, but with absolute freedom, when he wrote about hell, was that he was, Blake says, a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. That is, Milton didn't realize he was on Satan's side or didn't allow himself to realize that, but he was. Um, he was of the devil's party um, because the devil in Paradise Lost represents freedom. Um, Blake then went on to write an epic poem called Milton about Milton. Um, Milton after his death, um, coming down to earth and visiting Blake. That's the first thing that happens as an angel, um, as a kind of angel, as a, as a heavenly spirit. Um, Shelley, a little bit later, simply takes it for granted that Satan is the hero of Paradise Lost and that Satan is morally, as morally superior to God as a victim of torture is to um, a torturer who tortures his victim in undoubted security um, that he will never have to pay the price for this. Um, and so Satan is a person who suffers <coughs> his torture with very great courage, and God is a torturer. That's Shelley's view of Paradise Lost. Um, C.S. Lewis hates this view, um, and in fact he hated it so much that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia to try and um, disabuse anyone who would think that way um, and Satan becomes the white witch in the Chronicles of Narnia um, and so it's, it's a debate it's a debate that's been going on for a couple of hundred years um, I think the thing the way to understand this debate is to ask yourselves what the third realm, how the third realm looks best. The third realm is the realm of Earth. So does anyone remember what Satan says when he first sees Earth? 
so this is in book four. And he gets down to Earth. Um, and he's stunned by what he sees. Um, and um, we're gonna have to, we're gonna look back at the beginning of Book Four and his great speech to the Sun. Um, oh, but now I'm not finding it. Um, <coughs> Do you mean when he sees the creatures, as in Adam and Eve, or...? Well, no, it's when he says, Oh, Earth, how like to heaven, if not preferred more justly. Oh, okay. Um, I'm looking at the all hell part. Yeah, that's all, I think that's later. Okay. Um, yeah. Actually, I may not find... Uh, eh, we'll wait on this. I may be wrong about where it is. Um... Damn. Um, as it were. <laughs> um, shoot, I had it in my other book, unfortunately. Now I'm not finding it here. Um... All right, you find it, Fino. I will. Um, when he sees, he sees the sun, and he's filled with rage. He sees Adam and Eve, and he can't believe how beautiful they are. Um, and um, what that's telling you, and what the speech that I'm trying to find but not finding now, um, which is um, that Earth may actually be more beautiful than heaven. Um, there's an amazing moment where Satan um, thinks Earth is really like heaven. Um, it's line 350-ish. Ish. Yeah. Okay. Of uh, book four, where he ruminates. Um, no, that's the oh hell. But isn't that the him looking at the sun before that too? Yeah, but... Um, no, it's where he says, um, O oh earth, how like to heaven, if not preferred more justly, seek worthier to be praised. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that's what I was looking for. Right. Um, but now I'm not finding it. At any rate, when he sees earth, I'm not making that up. I wish I were, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, and then he says, for what God after better, worse would build. Um, that is, it makes sense that earth is more beautiful than heaven. Oh, I see it. Oh, son, to tell thee how, how I hate thy I beams. Hate thy that's, beams. Yeah, not that. Um, that was actually those were the first lines of Paradise Lost that Milton wrote um, Milton was originally going to do it as a, as a play um, his idea was Paradise Lost would be a play and the first the beginning of the play would be enter Satan and then Satan would soliloquize um, against the sun um, and he would tell the sun how much he hated his beams um, so Satan would come out as a very very dramatic and dynamic villain um, coming on stage to curse the sun. That would be his first um, moment. Um, then that becomes uh, Satan in book four after we get the backstory or some backstory in books one and two. At any rate, um, Earth 
is a place that could be heaven or could be hell. That's um, what the stakes are. What will become of earth? And what you should do is reverse that a little bit so that it becomes so that the question to ask yourself in Paradise Lost is um, what is the best thing or what are the best things about earth? And are the best things about earth things that you find in heaven or things that you find in hell? Or that is which of the two contending sides seem to be truer to what's best about Earth. Now, an, an answer to that, which is partly the right answer, is that Earth is better than both hell and heaven. Um, unfortunately, it's not going to stay that way. One way or another, it's going to go, it's going to become like heaven or it's going to become like hell. And it's not going to stay better than both. And not staying better than both means that in a sense you have to decide if you have a choice as to what will happen to Adam and Eve. You have to decide um, which is it better for it to happen to them. Which, which would be the better thing to happen to them. To fall or not to fall. We talked about this when we talked about the, the happy fall, um, the Felix Culpa, um, the fortunate fall. Um, and that's a question throughout. But is it better for Adam and Eve, is it better for humanity to fall or not to fall? Now, um, just to see how the stakes of this for Milton, if you go to the beginning of Book 3 of Paradise Lost, there's one other thing that I want to say, um, but not quite with respect to the beginning of Paradise Lost, but the, uh, the beginning of Book 3, but, the, but it's worth saying it here as well. Um, Paradise Lost has a narrator. And that narrator, um, a decent first approximation of thinking about the narrator of Paradise Lost is to think that that narrator is Milton. But the narrator will sometimes be very naive and sometimes very sophisticated. That is, as in all storytelling, um, the narrative voice is always somewhat inconsistent. Um, narrative voices have to be inconsistent because sometimes, you know, even in the simplest kind of storytelling, narrative voices some, sometimes have to play dumb and they sometimes have to tell you everything you need to know from a position of clear authority. This is not, it's not unusual for, um, to, it, it's something we're very skilled at understanding, which is the inconsistency of a narrative voice. Um, but in Paradise Lost, it really matters. Um, and what really matters is that um, the best way to see the narrator of Paradise Lost <coughs> is um, to see him as someone who is learning things as the poem progresses. The invocation to the muse at the very beginning, the muse is the Holy Spirit, um, but the invocation to the muse at the very beginning of this poem, like any epic poem, means that the narrator says, tell me the story because I want to know it also. So, in epic, if you take the invocation to the muse seriously, very few epic poets do, 
Um, Homer did a little bit in the Iliad, but not at all, I don't think, in the Odyssey. Um, other more minor epic poets really don't. Um, Statius, for example, doesn't. Um, Dante is tricky, but Milton is certainly taking the invocation to the muse seriously as teach me the true story. And part of what that means then is as he learns the story, he has the experience that any hearer of a good story has, which is to learn to think of characters differently as the story progresses. The only thing that makes a story really interesting is if you change your views of characters in the course of the story. You come to feel, to take an obvious example, you come to feel pity for King Lear after your initial reaction to him is, what a jerk, the worse the consequences of his idiocy are to him, the better. But then you don't feel that way halfway through the, through the play anymore. But any story, any good story is one in which your attitude towards characters changes. And that happens to the narrator of Paradise Lost. His attitude changes. So part of a way to see this is to say that his attitude towards Satan changes. Um, part of it is to see that his attitude towards Adam and Eve changes. Um, part of it is also, or there's, a, there's another part of Paradise Lost, which that Blakeian um, um, bit of description of Milton um, can give you a sense of, which is that the narrator is struggling with his material. It's not that Milton is struggling with his material, although some people think it's Milton. Um, but it's not that Milton is struggling with his material, it's that the narrator is. You should see the narrator as a character and not just a voice in Paradise Lost. And what he's struggling with is that he thought he knew what the story was supposed to be and who the good guys were and who the bad guys are and what the right thing to do in any situation is and what the wrong thing to do in any situation is. But the material is saying no. It doesn't work the way you thought it would. It's very hard for you to continue to have the commitments that you had at the start once you see what's really going on in the story. Um, again, there, this is to compare great things with near great things. Um, really good spy stories work this way. That is, spy stories on the Graham Greene, John Le Carre mode, where someone you know, signs up with the good guys and when that person signs up with the good guys to be a spy, you know, for NATO or for um, the United Kingdom or for the U.S., then they're brought in um, and told the secrets of what the spy agencies have to do. And it turns out what they have to do is actually pretty evil. And the telling of the secrets is, you know, we do this with great regret. We don't want to do these evil things. That's a typical Graham Greene or John Le Carre story. Um, but it's the only thing we can do to protect the country. And um, what happens is that there be, there, you hit a point of moral crisis 
where the person thinks being on the side of the good guys will excuse out anything and everything. But that eventually gets to the point where maybe that's not true anymore. Maybe that initial ground-level commitment, because it's clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, maybe that gets chipped away so much that the spy no longer feels confident that he's doing the right thing or that she's doing the right thing. Um, and that's any, any really good spy story, the kind of deep spy stories that I'm talking about, will have that kind of moment in them. Um, a moment where the betrayal that the spy has to undertake is so tremendous um, that it's no longer clearly prescribed. Um, you know, if you think of Daniel Craig, well, just think of any Daniel Craig movie, but if you think of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies, what makes them so great is that they're different from all the previous James Bond movies where Bond would always cheerfully do what he was supposed to do. That's true in the James Bond novels until you get to um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that's when Bond finally gets disgusted with the life that he's leading, which is a strange thing for him to do. But if you guys have seen um, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, how many people have seen them? Um, they're great. I think they're great movies. I mean, they're not great the way Lestrade is great. Um, but they're really, really wonderful movies. Um, and um, part of it is that you have a Bond who is who you who never imagined he could get morally conflicted about anything, who then becomes morally conflicted. So the story about how moral conflict arises in a character who's already made a choice of the good guys at the start, that's a good story. And that's the story in Paradise Lost. And the figure for whom moral conflict arises is, first of all, the narrator. Now, not always and not consistently, but most of the time, and especially when he's telling the story, not when he's reflecting upon himself so much as when he's telling the story. And so just to first to give you a sense of him and to go back to this question of inner versus outer world, there's the great invocation of book three, which let's look at. Um, we'll get back to the invocation of book one. It's conventionally said that there are four invocations in Paradise Lost to the Muses. That is, um, the word invocation means that at the beginning of an epic poem you say, O Muse, tell me the story of blah, blah, blah. Um, the first three words of the Iliad are mene, naeda, thea, as you all know, and as you all know, that means anger, sing, goddess. Mene, naeda, thea. That is, and then the anger of Achilles and why he was so angry and so on. But first three words of the Iliad, invocation of the, of the muse. Um, first words of the Odyssey, invocation of the muse. Um, first words of the Aeneid, not so much, but that's an amazing thing that Virgil is doing. He says, I'm going to sing of arms and the man. Um, first words of Canto Three of Don Juan by Byron, not Don Juan, guys, Don Juan. First words of Canto Three of Don Juan. What? You never knew that? No, I had no clue. I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every day and week brings forth a new one until filling up the world with Kant, the world decides he's not the true one. Oh, God. That's... New one and true one oh. then rhyme with Jew one. Yeah, Byron is very explicit about that. Huh. Okay, you learned something this yes. semester. Um, Don Juan. Um, 
Invocation in Canto Three of Don Juan. Byron, Don Juan is the greatest comic poem in English. Um, invocation of Book Three is Hail Muse, etc. And <laughs> he then goes on to tell his story. He's not going to waste your time with a lot of invoking of the muses. Um, Milton does do a lot of invoking of the muses. Book one, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe till one greater man restore us and regain the heavenly seat. Sing the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse. So he's got a whole lot of stuff that the muse is supposed to sing about. Seven lines worth. But then sing heavenly muse. The classicist I knew as an undergraduate had contempt for Milton because they said, blah, 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 sing muse. Um, and that's a little bit Byron's joke, hail muse, etc. Um, but he invokes the muse conventionally, he said to invoke the muse four times in Paradise Lost, and symmetrically, the beginnings of book one and three in the first half of Paradise Lost, and at the be- beginnings of book seven and nine in the second half of Paradise Lost. That is the first and third books of the first half, the first and third books of the second half. It all works out. Um, I think there's a fifth invocation, which is the beginning of book four, um, and we'll look at that in a moment. But that's a failed invocation, and interesting is a failed invocation. But Hail Holy Light is the invocation in book three. Offspring of heaven, firstborn. Why is light the firstborn offspring of heaven? Let there be light. God said, let there be light. In the beginning, God said, let there be, yeah, created heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void. Milton is going to call that chaos and old night, the realm of chaos and old night. The spirit of God making it pregnant, as he says. Yes. Um, And the wind of God moved on the waters, um, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so the gospel according to John begins... Beginning with the word, the word was God, and the word was with God. Other way around, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, so the word, God's first word is, let there be light. First thing God ever says. Um, because he says it in the beginning. How do we know it's in the beginning? Because in the beginning, God said, let there be light. Um, John is redoing, is giving a philosophical redoing of the beginning of Genesis. So the first thing, what created everything was God's creation of the word that created everything. Yeah, the logos. So when God says, let there be light, the first created thing is God speaking that word. Fiat lux. Let there be light. The logos means word, but also reason and logic and discourse. Um, Complicated word, logos. But the first thing God says is a word. And the word he says is light. And by saying the word light, when God says something, it exists. Have you ever seen Al- Alanis Morissette as God? Um, oh, yeah. So in, when in she that, finally the opens muse, her mouth. Right? No. Not the muse. In dogma. In dogma. Yes, that's right. Yes. And she opens her mouth finally. And so when God speaks, um, existence, God speaks existence into existence. So by saying light, he speaks light into existence. But what speaks light into existence is the word. So the first thing that comes out of God is the word, which is creative. The existence of the word creates the thing it names. That's what John says. So the first thing that comes out of God is the word, 
and therefore the word is metaphorically the son of God with God the first thing that God creates the first thing he says is with God and is God and that's where you start getting the doctrine of the Trinity the son is the word Milton is going to say that also um, that God sends his word and his spirit to create earth and the word is the son of God and the spirit of course is the Holy Spirit um, so light is the first word and the first created thing um, is it created or was it always there we don't know but here what he's doing in book three is essentially redoing the beginning of John hail holy light offspring of heaven firstborn the first thing to come from God from heaven firstborn like the sun or of the eternal co-eternal beam may I express thee unblamed again that second line of the eternal co-eternal beam there's a lot of philosophy that's compressed into that line but the idea is if God is the source of light then as long as God existed which is to say forever he's eternal Light must have existed because God is light. Nevertheless, God is the source of light rather than light being independently eternal from God. It's not God existed forever. Oh, and there's this other thing that also existed forever, which is light, because God always um, uh, streams light out from himself, radiates light from himself. God always does that, but God is still prior to light in a causal sense, not in a temporal sense. As a source. But as a source, light comes from God. Light is as eternal as God, but light is eternal because God is eternal. So God is the source of the, of the eternity of light. And that's why it might be wrong to say that it's the offspring firstborn because that would be thinking of it in temporal terms that God was around and then um, in time and then one fine day before days were created God said let there be light but Milton is again reminding you no see this outside of time Perhaps God doesn't live in time begotten. yeah that makes it I mean rather yeah. more clear. yeah but it's, the idea is to see that begotten here means cause of. Mm -hmm. To beget means to be the cause of, mm -hmm. rather than to say that at some point light came into existence. Mm -hmm. It's rather, in time, you could put it that way, but God outside of time is always light. So Milton says, can I, can, is it okay for me to invoke you? May I express thee, speak of you, unblamed, since God is light, and it's okay for me to pray to light to God rather since God is light and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity dwelt then in thee bright effluence the thing that flows out of God of bright essence because God is himself a bright essence increate uncreated not a created thing and the question is does that past participle increate or that adjective part participial adjective increate does it apply to light to the bright effluence or does it apply to God to the bright essence and the answer is yes to both to both but notice that there's a question about where participles apply which we'll return to tomorrow um, a little later on in book three it's almost as though Milton is setting that up as a question 
when you put what's called an absolute construction into a line like this, you add a participle. And when you do, it can sometimes be hard to see what it's connected to. The participle that we'll look at is the one, and man there placed. That's a very important participle a little bit later in book three. Okay. God is, light is the effluence, what flows out of God. It's the bright thing that flows out of God, but it flows out of God because God is bright. The essence of God is bright also. It would be different if it were bright effluence of deep essence. Then the light would be separate from God. But God's essence is bright. And then he says, or what, should I call you something else? Or hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain who shall tell? Before the sun, before the heavens, thou word, and at the voice of God, there again, in the beginning was the word. And at the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising world of waters, dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. That's chaos. Again, you should be thinking of book three of um, the Fairy Queen, the huge eternal chaos and what form does to it. What's form in Spencer is light in Milton. Light changes chaos into form. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing. He's returning to the precincts of light. Escape the Stygian pool. That is, no more am I describing what happens in hell. I have escaped hell. Escaped the Stygian pool. Though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes than to the Orphean lyre I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare. So the muse helped me to come to go down to hell and then to come back to earth. Thee, he repeats, I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign, vital lamp. I can feel the light. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. So I come back to light but you don't come back to my eyes. I st I'm still blind. And then he says, we'll just end with this for today, yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill smit with the love of sacred song. So even though I can't see, I still wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill. That is the same realm as I wandered in Lycidas. I do it in the mind. Even though I can't see, I still go there to those places where, which the muses haunt, smit with the love of sacred song. Who's smit with the love of sacred song? That's another absolute construction. What are the possibilities? The muses, him. Yeah. I wander those places because I'm smit with the love of sacred song or because the muses are smit with the love of sacred song. Um, it's not clear. And it doesn't matter at that point. We all are. They all are. But it's almost as though he's trying to get you to realize 
that these past participles are interesting. Okay, more tomorrow. I found the sun bit, but not all earth. It says he's talking. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. Okay. Um, what are we supposed to be reading? Uh, read through book six.